Hi, Eric. Hey, Aaron. How's it going? It's going reasonably well. Happy holidays. Thank you very much. They're all over. Yes. Well, no, not technically. I guess Monday, as we were recording this, is Martin Luther King Day. Yes. Excellent. So, one more holiday. Yay. I love holidays. Very nice. Um, what's going on? Um, I am sitting with you here in the basement of the Berkeley Ward. That's right. And I'm ready to talk. All right. The sugar buffalo upstairs have calmed down for a minute. Yes, we have a moment. Okay. Um, what'd you think of the talk? <laughs> Is that where you want to start? No, actually. <laughs> okay, go uh, ahead. You're a scientist. Okay, You yeah. work with very small things. Yeah. Do you work with things small enough that the uncertainty principle is relevant to your work? Uh, not in my work. So I deal with atomic positions as opposed to subatomic positions. Okay. But you know about I the do. Could you explain it? Can I explain the uncertainty principle? Yes. Oh, I am, certainty. I am not certain that I can explain, <laughs> explain the uncertainty principle because it is, well, it's such a difficult thing to even think about, right? Well, what's, what's the like, two-sentence version that you learn in you high can, school? When you're talking about like the subatomic particles, right? Yes. You can know where they are or where they're going. Right. That's it. That's it. You but you have know, to choose. You can't, you can't know both. That's a very abridged summary of it, right? And there's yes. a lot of math involved. Right? I'm sure there is. A lot of these things come from the math as opposed to observation, and then we make observations, and then they're like, well, does that fit the math or not? I mean, that's the entire LHC, right? Trying to f discover what, uh, what's going on, and we get to refine our models. Yeah. Right? So how do you feel about that? How do, do I feel about the Have you given up on electrons because um, of the uncertainty principle? Personally, I have not given up on electrons. Oh, okay. I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, th I think it's really interesting and fundamental that we don't know where things are or how fast they're going. You can know one or the other. Yeah. Um, but it only really applies to the subatomic realm, but it's the linkage between that realm and the, you know, the big realm that people are always looking for, right? Trying to connect the theory of gravity to the other subatomic. Gravity, that's a tough one. Yeah, because these forces operate on huge scales, mm -hmm. right? Compared to the forces of electricity. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I don't know if it's relevant. Okay. It's well. relevant. We'll come back to it. <laughs> you were saying something about a talk. Yeah. What do you think of the talk? Did you read it? I didn't. Okay. I couldn't convince myself to, which makes me a very bad podcaster. That's interesting. Okay. We are talking about a talk today. It's well, It's kind of like we're doing a uh, Sunday school lesson. Yeah. I it, guess this is our new Sunday school. Well, not Sunday school. Like Priesthood Relief Society. Yeah. This is the repertoire. Yeah. We look at a talk. But this one's six years old, so it has fallen into the realm of no longer pressing revelation, I suppose. It will never make the list for 2020 in any ward of the church. <laughs> Come join with us. By President Uchtdorf. Yeah, President well, Uchtdorf. Second counselor in the first, in this, in the, yep, then president in the first presidency, right? Yes. It's an excellent talk. Yeah, I liked it at the time. I liked it at the time, I too. I still do not dislike it. Mm -hmm. um, I did reread it, and it is quite. It is worth re revisiting if you haven't seen it in a while. Um, he talks a lot about about essentially bringing people into the church and mm -hmm. about um, why people leave the church and um, why people stay and what's interesting about the church. Right? Yes. Should we read a section of it just for fun? Sure. That yeah, isn't the favorite. section that we want. Okay, the, we're you know we're there's being a, a paragraph bit, that we will be spending more. We're time being a with. bit dis disingenuous. We are going to drill in on a part of the talk. Okay? Yes. But let's, let's. I want to make sure that President Nukdorf gets his due here because it is very good, right? Sure. Yeah. 
All right, a nice cup. So there's a couple, right? There's a man. Okay, so once there was a man who dreamed that he was in a great hall where all the religions of the world were gathered. Nice. He realized each religion had much that seemed desirable and worthy. He met a nice couple who represented the, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Okay. He asked, what do you require of your members? We do not require anything. Oh. But the Lord asks that we consecrate all. <laughs> uh, okay. I don't know about this couple. Go ahead. <laughs> okay, go ahead. Oh, wait, no, it's me that's going ahead. Yes. The couple went on to explain about church callings, home and visiting teaching, full-time missions, weekly family home evenings, temple work, welfare, and humanitarian service, and assignments to teach. Do you pay your people for all the work they do? The man asked. Oh, no, the couple explained. They offer their time freely. Also, the couple continued, every six months over at church, we spend 10 hours watching General Conference. <laughs> 10 hours of people giving talks? What about your weekly church services? How long are they? Three hours. Two hours now. Yeah, the church is, is that percentage less true? Is that the implication <laughs> here now that we're down to two-hour church? <laughs> oh my, the man said. Do members of your church actually do what you have said? That and more. We haven't mentioned... Family history, youth camps, devotional, scripture study, leadership training, youth activities, early morning seminary, maintaining church buildings, Lord's Law of Health, monthly fast, tithing. Now I'm confused. Why would anybody want to join such a church? The couple smiled and said, we thought you'd never ask. Wow. Yeah. What a cliffhanger. It is a cliffhanger. And um, it's, it's, I don't know, man, I thought it was a cool intro. Um, and then he talks about why you'd want to join the church, because it's the Savior's church, because there's blessings. And then he talks a lot of, to people who leave the church mm. and talks about why they might might leave. Yes. And this is why I thought it would be fun and interesting to talk about this talk. Yes. Mm -hmm. As you pitched this episode to me, yeah. um, one of your points, which is a very good point, is how generationally saints view this talk differently yeah yeah so here's the section that uh, that the reason why we're giving this talk the reason why we're doing this episode okay what about my doubts it is natural to have questions the acorn of honest inquiry has often sprouted and matured into a great oak of understanding there are few members of the church who at one time or the other have not oh, let's say that again. There are few members of the church who, at one time or another, have not wrestled with serious or sensitive questions. One of the purposes of the church is to nurture and cultivate the seed of faith, even in sometimes sandy soil, of doubt and uncertainty. Faith is to hope for things which are not seen, but which are true. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, my dear friends, please, first, doubt your doubts before you doubt your faith. Never have I experienced <laughs> a talk that was received so differently among the different generations that I know of in the church than those few words right there. It's especially interesting because President Uchtdorf, I would argue, on average, is more successful at reaching the different generations within yes. the church and i wouldn't say he didn't reach people because he certainly got a reaction from every every age group mm -hmm. but it was not the same reaction so what do you th let's talk about um the generation older than us okay let's start okay. there what do you think their reactions to this talk to th that sentence there doubt your doubts i think this is largely the message that or should we talk about what we think it means no we'll go oh, let's move down okay yeah I, I think this is the message that they received and that they passed on 
and that they still largely accept mm -hmm. as a whole. That um, the purpose of faith is not to worry about the things you don't know. Put them on a shelf, right? That's the popular metaphor. Um, so I think that this largely Wait, stated... maybe, st what's, what's this metaphor? Um, so if you have things you don't understand, Aaron, mm -hmm. just put them on a shelf. Mm -hmm. Maybe someday you can take them down and examine them. Maybe with your grown understanding, you will understand those things you put on the shelf. And, and polygamy or 1978 or whatever will make more sense in the future. Mm -hmm. But don't worry about those things now. Have you not heard that before? I have definitely heard that before. Okay. Yes. And now that you mention it, I know exactly what you're talking about. It, I was certainly um, told that. Yes. Um, either by whoever. I don't know who told it to me. Um, and I'm, I don't know that, that I ever believed it or agreed with it. But there was definitely something that, um, a sentiment, if not yeah. that analogy exactly, a sentiment. Or don't worry about it now. Well, the great thing about a metaphor is it can be both correct and erroneous simultaneously. Mm -hmm. And I think the shelf metaphor is a good example of that. Like, it is good not to um, go jumping into the sea of anxiety without any plan to get out again, right? Like, you shouldn't worry about your worries to the point where that's all you can do is worry, right? You, it, your doubts, the things that concern you, shouldn't overwhelm your life. I think that is good, healthy advice. Mm -hmm. that even Gen Z would agree with. Mm -hmm. um, but simultaneously, putting stuff on a shelf doesn't make it disappear, mm -hmm. right? Ignoring things doesn't make them not matter. Um, and it runs the real risk of feeling like a lie you're telling to yourself. And then when one of those things crashes off the shelf and you can't ignore it anymore... And splinters into a thousand pieces. Right, then you have a huge mess to clean up and it might be easier just to lock the door and walk away. Yeah, I mean, that's very analogous to... Um, Carolyn Pearson's analogy, right? Where yeah. when a piece of her, of the, of what she thought she knew, fell on the floor and broke, right? Instead of putting it back together, she would take some of the pieces and very in a very Marie Kondo way, mm. thank them and throw them away, <laughs> <laughs> right? Sure. So, yeah. Um. And in anyway. So this is one way to look at doubt your doubts. It's right. just to say, yeah. Um, I'm not going to spend time worrying about these questions. Right. Because I have a testimony. If those things are going to make you unhappy, they are clearly evil. Ignore them. Yeah, let's just move on. And it's not, for a lot of people, I would say, mm -hmm. it's not a way, it's not, it's not a, it's like I can't be bothered, right? Like I right. got too much other stuff to worry about. Yes. Church, I really feel like I have a testimony. Yes. And I just don't want to worry about this stuff. That's Second a little weird, but whatever. I got stuff to do. Right. Yeah. So I'm just not going to worry about it. Right. And I think that That's felt sufficient, on average, yeah. for the people older than us. Like, baby boomer, boomers, uh, silent generation. Yeah. This is how I think. Now, I could be wrong, and I know that we have people that are older than us this listening. This is anecdotal evidence. Uh -huh. Aaron, totally. you're a scientist. I'm a scientist. How do you feel about anecdotal evidence? I love it. <laughs> Shame on you. How do you ever get published? <laughs> um, the thing is that um, I know that these statements aren't true for everybody. Right. And I haven't even done the study that tells me how true they are. But I think it's oh. I think it's interesting to talk about it. I, I just realized what I should have brought. Okay. Um, Jen Reese has a new book called The Next Mormons. It's about... Oh, there's a copy right outside the bishop's office, I realized, on the little bookshelf that people uh -huh. can sit and read while they're waiting to talk to him. Okay. I'm not going to go grab it. But um, 
she has gathered together research about um, the next Mormons, millennials and younger, mm -hmm. and the trends that the church is seeing. Um, and I and it largely backs up our gut feelings. I mean, I'm oversimplifying. Every youth that I've talked to about this talk. Yes, tell us about the youths. It, they did not like it. Yeah, from young millennials, the younger millennials to the Gen Zs. Yeah. Don't like it. They don't like this talk. They think, when they hear the phrase, Yes. and again, I know that we're paraphrasing, and that we are, but we just we can only speak from our you experience. You know, if we can successfully make everyone angry with yeah. this episode, we'll be famous. Great. Everyone will subscribe. No, no, it's not such a thing as bad publicity. That's right. <laughs> when I understand, everybody that I've talked to that's a kid about this, yes, they dislike it. They dislike it immensely. Yeah. Because doubt your doubts, to them, I mean, I was even talking to one recently. To them, feels like 1984. Well, it's inherently dishonest, right? Or that's how they view it. And I, I feel that they are misunderstanding President Uchtdorf uh -huh. in, on one level, but on the other level, they are understanding him because, um, like we were just talking about, there are some negative side effects to just ignoring things. Mm -hmm. And you, I think you're right. Too. This is how they're interpreting it, if you don't mind me speaking for them. Of course you don't because there's no, they can't defend themselves. None of them are in this room. Yeah. But... Wait till they take to Twitter, though. <laughs> they got good game. So, how? What do you mean? Doubt my doubts? How could I could? My doubts are really important, and if I don't resolve them, how can I move on? Well, so this talk, uh, this talk is very zeitgeisty, right? Two thousand thirteen. This is not very long after I had sort of started embracing the word doubt mm -hmm. as a very valuable thing, and I wasn't alone. I'm sure if somebody did an engram search of LDS books only, they would find that this was happening a lot. Um, you can't have faith without doubt. The opposite of faith is not doubt. Like, they're siblings. Like, the opposite of faith is knowledge. Like, like faith is hoping for things. It's believing things you can't see. Doubt has a place there, right? Like, like doubt is a way to navigate the shape of faith. Like, you have to figure out where, where is that boundary between where, what I believe and what I don't believe and that is a valuable exercise and it's not the opposite of faith in my opinion um, and not long after this so this talk comes out in October of 2013 in August of the following year um, Terrell and Fiona Givens book The Crucible of Doubt comes out which is about how doubt is a necessary process we go through in becoming faith and it's a very popular book among LDS readers. It's sold at um, Desert Book, but it's also liked among the hedonistic crowd. Um, <laughs> doubt was in the air. And uh, when I first heard this talk myself, I was like, oh, President Uchtdorf has smelled this word, and he's trying to give us some guidance on how to like feel about doubt. And to me, and now we're getting to the generation in between. That's where I was going next. Um, yeah. To me, this talk wasn't saying either of those things things that yeah. we, we've talked about our judgmental views of the people older and younger than us. Mm -hmm. um, to me, it was saying that, sure, doubt has a place, but it, you don't necessarily need to let it drive the car. It's like, I understood what, kick it out of the car, I understood but, what he was getting at, yeah. right? And I was able to internalize what he, got, what he was trying to say, right? Yes. Because I think the, 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 the nugget of truth in there is, right, mm -hmm. is to not immediately assume that your doubt is correct. 
Right. All right. Because Not, there is a tendency, and I can think of some young people I've talked to who feel this way, that that doubt should be trusted first because it's more honest, because I found it on my own. Yeah. When in reality, it's just someone on the internet wrote something. Yeah, probably. <laughs> yeah. The idea of what we found on our own is almost always incorrect. Like, there are very few original thoughts, in my opinion. Yeah. So, th I feel like that's what President Ufdorf is saying here. Have... Um, don't 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 just blindly assume that the, your doubts are more important and more real than your testimony. Don't let this thing that you've heard. Yeah. F first, if you be skeptical of this thing that you heard about the church, right, and don't let it shatter your testimony. I think that's what he's getting here, right? Well, and this is almost this is this is our. Um statement of purpose almost at face and hat right is yeah. is that these things which could if you've built up a wall around doubt and you've never seen one before and you've trained yourself in a 1984 sort of way to sing a hymn before you think about um you know i don't know joseph smith's 15th wife or something then your walls are weak and they will come tumbling down in a Jericho-like fashion. Um, and I think this is an advantage that our generation has in understanding what President Uchtdorf said. This great, uh, among the, the so-called like progressive Mormons, he's this yeah. great figurehead, the silver fox, and um, but he's also in the First Presidency, so among more conservative Mormons, he's a very serious person. And I think he was in the perfect position to bridge this gap. Um, and I think for us he did, because we were inoculated against the ideas of the generation older than us because we grew up hearing them as, as like lifelong members of the church, both of us. We heard these ideas, but we also lived in this world. And this so like Gen world. X and, and the first half, three quarters of the millennials, I feel like we're really well prepared to hear what he said and what he meant. Um, and I feel like the people older than us only heard what he said in sort of the terms that they understood. And the people younger than him under, heard what he said and misunderstood it because they didn't have the context, like the historical context of talking about doubt. He was trying to bridge these two worlds, and um, I think it only worked for the people in the middle. That's right. Um, that's great. That's exactly what I'm trying to get at. Um, when I... When I the internet age is so interesting okay, yeah. that we're in here. So you and I are kind of this answering machine generation. Okay? <laughs> we're the generation of folks that still know what an answering machine is. Yes. <laughs> but also um, are, uh, have, uh, you know, had an, have had email addresses for half of our life instead, yes. of, instead, of, yes, all of, our, instead of all of our life, right? Whereas, Half is almost exactly right. Yeah. Whereas the the folks coming up younger than us have never known a world without unlimited information at your fingertips. Right? Yeah. And it makes a big difference. It makes there's, a difference. There's an attitude difference. There's an in the in the approach to information. Right. Yes. Can we talk a bit about another trend that I've seen? in general conference addresses sure. and church manuals. And that is statements against social media. Ah, uh, that's a really interesting one. I have not, like, tried to compile those or anything. Can you give me a, just a general sense as to how you feel about this? 
Uh, no, because I don't really have strong feelings about it either way. But I can tell you a trend I noticed online, um, and I forget which one came first, but I think it was the youth fast, social media fast that was suggested. I believe that was first, and I forget how long it was for, like a month or something. And then, and the Relief Society General, or the General Women's Meeting, is it, is that what it, something, whatever it's called now, um, there was the suggestion that women go on a two-week social media fast. I could have the numbers wrong. I believe that's how it went. I believe it was a month, and then it was two weeks. And, um, and then the next one rolled around, and among the many feminist Mormons that I, I um, am familiar with online, there were a lot of jokes about, like, oh, well, so are the men going to have to fast for one week now? Or, <laughs> or, or at the very least, like, they better be told to fast because the children were and the women were, and, um, and they weren't. We were not instructed to go on a fast. And I think what happened, I mean, right now with the new youth program, the church is rolling out its own social media platform. Um, I think that the church realized that they didn't get it quite right with the youth, uh, but they still believed in the principle of, like, going off social media. So they tried to rejigger it and give it to the women, and that was problematic. Oh, can I tell you one way in which it was problematic? Sure. Um, there's a beautiful movie that came out, uh, written by a friend of mine, uh, Melissa Leilani Larson, who I believe I've mentioned on Face and Hat before. Uh, it's called Jane and Emma. Uh, it's a well-made movie, and their entire marketing campaign was built around social media, and their goal was to get as many Latter-day Saint women as possible into the theater to see this movie. The movie came out immediately after the fast began, the social Oops. media fast. The church killed Jane and Emma, yeah. dead, yeah. Um, at the box office, yeah. and which is awful, because uh -huh. it was a good movie, and yeah. I think the audience it was intended for would really like it. Um, I think the church would be happy if people were watching Jane and Emma. Well, <laughs> that's my opinion. <laughs> um, and they killed it dead, yeah. destroyed it, right? And as you might imagine, Mel was not happy with this. Most of the people working on the film were not happy with this, which includes like people across the street from the church office building who were paying for the distribution of this film. Um, XL Entertainment was running the distribution, which is owned by Desert Book. Um, killed it dead. Mm -hmm. um, that was not, I'm convinced, the intention of the social media fast. Mm -hmm. Um, and there were a lot of unintended consequences and there were women, I saw women online who are really, really torn because their livelihood is based on, um, like marketing, um, themselves or services or products and doing it through social media. And they're like, I can't like, I have to pay bills. I can't go on a social media fast and people trying to find ways. This is like, was it our last episode about, um, commandments that you obey yeah. in your own special way. Yeah. There was a lot of people grappling with this because it seemed pretty clear you weren't supposed to touch it for two weeks and that really wasn't a good option. And I think what the church learned, um, and I'm using the church intentionally vaguely, like I don't mean anything in particular by the church, but what I think the church learned is that they just had it wrong. Like this wasn't the right way to go about this issue, whatever the issue is. And there are problems associated with social media. Well, let's talk about that. This is another topic that I've had with youth mm -hmm. that also resounds very negatively, okay? yeah. which oh, sure. is limiting social media use, uh -huh. right? And like, it's as, it's as if when, I think, it's as if when they hear it, you know, limit, you know, reduce your social media use, they're like, what are you talking about? This is, this is my life. Yes. Right? This is who I am. 
Right. Right? And there's, I think there's this gap in understanding between what it means to be a young person on all of the various social media platforms now that has never existed before. And and a reduction of that just doesn't even, it's like, what are you talking about? It's like, it's a whole different, it's like you're growing antenna. (laughs) Yeah. Just doesn't make any sense. So, um, and I think these two things are related, okay? This whole okay. doubt your doubt thing, this whole reduced social media thing, um, then this reaction among youth of like, I, I don't really under, I don't feel like we're on this, we're, on, we're, take, we're speaking the same language here. Well, they do fundamentally live in a different world. Like, it's, it's hard for me, I teach high school English, and I cannot remember how I did my research for papers I wrote. Mm-hmm. I don't... How did I do it? I remember. I mean, I know I... Encyclopedias. I, There were encyclopedias, but you can't do much depth with that. I remember getting big stacks of books from the library, having mm-hmm. to drive to Bakersfield to the bigger library to get as many books as possible on my topic. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you go to a how long did pla- I have to work on those? Did I have like two months to do that? To like yeah. get a book sent from Fresno, which I had to do a couple times? <laughs> like how long did I have to work on these assignments when my students... Are can plagiarize Wikipedia in an evening. Um, <laughs> I, I, I don't really remember what the world was like before the internet changed it. So I, th- I think that there are reasons to reduce your screen time. And I think, I'm not opposed to that. And I think that yes. if you read the comments of the f- general authorities, that oftentimes they'll use that phrase Instead of social media, mm-hmm. I've I'm, again. I, this is just from my own impressions, and I think that there's some value in human to human interactions as opposed to human to computer to human interactions. Do you so, remember in the sixty minutes with Gordon B. Hinckley, circa nineteen ninety five, nineteen ninety six? Yeah, um, and Mike Wallace says. Well, what do you say about those people who say, this is just a gerontocracy, a church run by old men? Mm-hmm. And President Hinckley said, ah, it's wonderful to have, you know, a hand of steady experience. Um, and in general, like, I think that's true. But the world changes so rapidly. Um, I do think that this is, this is the reason why the accusation that the church is a gerontocracy holds weight. Um, and the thing is, like, I'm not, I'm not saying we need to replace the 12 with a bunch of 20-somethings because the 20-somethings are already out of date. Um, working at a high school, I can see how quick things move. Um, things change so fast, like what kids are on and what they're using. And, and it's, fracture, it's fractured, too. Just like when we were kids, everybody, even if you didn't watch it, you knew about Seinfeld, right? You knew who the main characters were. Um, Entertainment isn't really like that anymore, and neither is social media. Um, my son, my older son, who's 16 now, um, is on Instagram, and he's on iFunny, which makes me a little nervous because, um, I mean, he's always showing me things, and so far so good, he hasn't become a neo-Nazi. But um, he's not on Facebook, he's not on Twitter, he's not on Snapchat, he's not on TikTok. TikTok seems to be the biggest thing at the high school. Um, they're so fractured and compartmentalized that 
there's no way for anyone to like speak the language of now because now is already gone. These are the conversations that I think we should be having. Okay, the conversations aren't reduce your social media, doubt your doubts. Yes. The conversations need to be decompartmentalize your life, become rounded. Mm -hmm. Engage in many communities. Yeah. Think critically. Yes. Be religious. Okay? Mm -hmm. And in many ways, that's the youth program they're talking about upstairs. Yes. Right? With the goals. The mm -hmm. new youth program is centered around these, the, you're supposed to make goals um, in uh, intellectual, spiritual, um, social. social, and physical. I do think there's one missing. Uh, which one do you think is missing? I think creative. Oh, I like that. I like that. I wouldn't have thought of that because I'm a stupid scientist. Well, <laughs> my reason is because I want to do it with my kids and every goal I come up with, like, no, that's creative. I'm like, I don't know which box that fits in. So that's why I really need a creative. Um, I love this new program because it's so much different than Scouts. I think it has so much potential. Yeah. Have um, we talked about Scouts? Like, we, I on think the show? we have... We have. Um, We've hinted at how we it have, was weird. We have, in passing, made comments about scouts. In yeah, the past, it was I like believe. a like kind of military, you know, and a little colonial, and yeah, you know, it makes to me it makes total sense that we're no longer scouts. <laughs> yes, it seems overdue. Yeah, frankly. I mean, I did. I got. I, I loved scouts, mm -hmm. parts of scouts, but other parts, I was like, I don't want to be part of. I don't really want to go camping as much as these guys do. Uh -huh. Right, I've never bas done basket weaving more than. <laughs> Once for a merit badge in my life. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, okay, so now we have this new thing where we're going to become rounded. I think these are the conversations to have, right? Well, and they're important because the, the possible downside, the upside of the merit badges is, yes, the only time I've done fingerprinting is when I got my fingerprinting merit badge, but it was really cool, uh -huh. and I never would have done it otherwise, and That's it true. gave me some kind of appreciation and knowledge for something that exists in the world that I should probably know a little bit about. It's true. I mean, I got a first aid merit badge, yeah. right? I got a, you know, the citizenship ones were so boring, but they, you know. You choose your own goals, uh, you run the risk of just, you know, wearing out the carpet in mm -hmm. this small area where you're walking back and forth all the time. Yeah. But it also really reflects, I think, where the church is journeying to, which is this kind of individual accountability, right? Which is necessary because a lot of the things, and this is something that, the thing that makes me grit my teeth sometimes at General Conference is when there's a talk that is way too American. Mm -hmm. Like, like I, I think to myself, how do you translate this? Like, this is so American. This isn't going to make sense to anybody else. And that's not what the church is today. It, I mean, my experience of the church is super American, right? Yeah. Um, Berkeley American, but American. And... Um, I don't really understand the breadth of the church. And anything I say on this podcast about the youth program right now is almost definitely myopic and focused on what I see right here in Berkeley, which is kind of how it should be. The church is local. That's how Paul talks about it, right? The church is where you are. And I like that the church is empowering people to have the church be where they are. So can we talk about doubt? Yeah. Should we go back to the insert new principle for a moment? Yeah. I got that comparison from an, um, an essay called My Testimony is My Life, written by someone who why, goes by why, the Star Eater. Why don't you re restate it? Yes, I'm going to... Oh, the uncertainty principle? Is that what you mean? Oh, that's what you mean, the uncertainty yeah, principle. Yeah, the uncertainty principle. Yeah. Um, 
you can't know both things at once. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know who the Star Eater is. Um, he or she is a member of the Archive, which is a Mormon arts collective based in Utah. It does really cool stuff, and I recommend finding out more about them by their books. Um, and this essay explores like the birth of doubt in Star Eater's life and sort of where it where it went. And I would like to read um, a small passage. So where does that leave me? What is the nature of my testimony now? Knowledge and certainty no longer serve as the foundation of my spirituality. Much in the same way Heisenberg learned to hold truth loosely, I have learned to hold spiritual truth, and all of life really, with open hands and open mind and a grateful heart. I have grown increasingly comfortable and even fond of doubts and uncertainties. This may have been foolhardy of me, but rather than doubt my doubts, I invited them in and broke bread with them. I made friends with my shadow and learned how to love what seemed unlovable. My spiritual life is healthy, dynamic, always flowing, and alive. I am a committed and dedicated learner. It's interesting. This article, I read the whole thing. You sent me the link ahead of time. I did. It was very, very good. And it follows the story of this person who kind of has various crises of, yes. of faith, right? And um, ends up in this place of embracing doubt in their lives, right? In our world of all information always available, I don't think this is avoidable anymore. Say that again? I don't think you can avoid having these kind of crises anymore. And that's really the critical point, is that when I talk to people about doing this show, one of the things that I've heard is, aren't you promoting doubt where doubt didn't exist? I don't think ignorance is better than doubt. Let's be specific. Okay. All right. Joseph Smith. Heard of him. Put his face in a hat. He did. <laughs> okay. You walk around this church building and you won't find art that shows Joseph Smith with his face in his hat. You can't. He had a beautiful face, Aaron. Why would you want to put it in a hat for a piece of art? You can find <laughs> curtains and scribes and golden plates. Yes, and, right in this drawer that I'm sitting next to is where right. we can find that. This is where all the primary pictures are. I'm sure it's in there. Um, so here's, I think there are different kinds of doubts, though. Like, that one is, might be weird or something, but really, objectively, I would argue it's no weirder than the Urim and Thummim. Like, they are equally weird. Mm -hmm. You just had the wrong weird thing in your mind. You're saying that's I, not going to be a crisis. Well, it could be, sure. Especially if you've, if you've been trained to believe that the way you understand things is exactly 100% right at all times. I do think there are other kinds of things which, um, I was at a Sunstone conference once. I was presenting there think about comics I'm not sure and there was a fellow there who was younger than me who was in grad school I believe at the time he was a st he studied um, ancient scripture that was he was getting his PhD in ancient scripture and I don't remember what his talk was about but he did share with us it had something to do with it might have been the book of Abraham something to do with the Pearl of Great Price but he shared with us why he lost his faith in the church and it's because in his studies he learned about second Isaiah um, you, are you familiar with Second Isaiah? Second Isaiah has always troubled me since I learned about it. So, um, are you ready? I'm ready. All right. So, the Book of Isaiah, according to scholars, does not appear to be the work of one person. Two, maybe three people. There's were Isaiah at different times. 
And part of what's quoted in the Book of Mormon was written before 600 BC, and part of it was written after 600 BC. So this is a very big problem. If you want the Book of Mormon to be um, any quotations from the brass plates to have come from the brass plates when some of that stuff hadn't been written when they left Jerusalem. Um, I'm not super familiar with the scholarship here, so um, I do know this is generally accepted. It's sort of the climate change of Isaiah studies. Like, you know, all scientists agree this is true. Um, and it does raise questions about the Book of Mormon that um, almost any other question somebody gives me about the Book of Mormon, I have a ready response for. Like, I feel very confident in the Book of Mormon as a historical document, as the work of God, as the work of prophets, as correctly translated. I feel really good about the Book of Mormon. Second Isaiah, though, is the chink in my uh, faith in the Book of Mormon's armor. Like, it's something I don't understand, and I don't really know what to do with. Um, and I wouldn't say I'm doubting my doubt or even really putting it on a shelf, but it's not, you know, I'm not that worried about it. I have so much other evidence on the other side of this Libra that I don't, it's, it's not a big concern for me, but it's not something I can explain away. Like, it's a doubt that I can't do anything about. If I let it, Second Isaiah could probably tumble down my testimony also. And maybe it's my ignorance because I'm not a scholar that makes it easy for it not to. Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me if we, if, and, and we welcome feedback, so please, um, you know, here's the link that resolves this concern, right? <laughs> I don't think there is one, because uh -huh. um, I have looked. I took a class on Isaiah from BYU online a couple years ago, and they skirted that issue in a very shady way. Mm -hmm. Like, if I were um, 16 right now and I took that class, yeah. it's exact, it would push my buttons so hard. Yeah. Like, I was disappointed. I think the people younger than us would be outraged and... and um, and feel a, like it, they're lying to us because that's it was shady. How does one read a scientific paper? I don't, as a general rule. Not to say I never do, because yes. I love science and I love all kinds of reading. I try to be very widely read. Um, but I'm going to try to answer your question anyway. I would imagine that you read it with a healthy degree of skepticism. Yeah. Because especially if it's the first thing published on its subject, or if it's an outlier in its subject, it's good to be skeptical. Um, but you should also be open to the chance that something crazy just was discovered in this world. You have I, to be open to both possibilities. I like that answer. This word skepticism is really what I'm looking for. When, when I read a scientific paper, and in fact this was a fundamental part of my graduate school mm -hmm. education, was how to read scientific papers. Were you taught to be skeptical of your skepticism? Um, no, I was taught to be skeptical. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> read every figure, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And, and, and really think, especially in the discussion section of the paper, are the conclusions they're drawing warranted from the evidence? Sure, okay. Right? Do the methods seem good. Right. Do their arguments seem sound? Right? If they say something happened, yeah. have they shown enough evidence that it did? Right? Doesn't look reproducible. Right. Can this, I ask a slight sideways question and you can go right back to your thought? Yeah. Are you in favor? I imagine you are, but I could be wrong. Mm -hmm. Are you in favor of this push in science right now to publish your hypothesis and your methodologies before doing the experiment? So, so that you can't change it when you do the paper? N no. Mainly because 
um, you know, that old quote isn't uh, isn't like the what's the best part of what's the most exciting thing about science? It's not mm -hmm. when someone says Eureka. It's when someone looks at data and says that's funny, <laughs> <laughs> right? You yes. never, your data should take you places. Your hypotheses should take you places. Yes. Right. So I don't I don't buy it. I think that you have to do research when you don't know what the answer is going to be. However, yes. if I'm a government funding agency, <laughs> I need to know that there that there are that that it's not being frittered away on something that may or may not Thank work. you for speaking on behalf of the American taxpayer. <laughs> so, it goes both ways. Yeah. So, okay, so you read these papers with skepticism, with doubt. Yes. You don't your your assumption up front mm -hmm. is that you don't believe what they're saying. Okay. Right? You need to be convinced. I treat everything. Mm -hmm. I treat everything that I encounter now with the same approach. Okay. In terms of reading, in yes. terms of my own studies, right? Yeah. Um, church documents, these conversations about about talks. I want to know what the citations are. I want to know what the evidence. Is and I believe that the kids, these days, yeah, <laughs> are getting the same kind of education. Well, yes and no. Um, I, I the caveat I would put on that is I think where everything is right in front of us, um, we're often just lost my thread. Oh, the wh what I often see students doing is that the first thing that comes up in the Google results is the correct answer. Yeah. So search engine optimization is truth. Um, and so, so on the one hand, I agree. They, they believe in being critical and looking for their own answers. On the other hand, they're satisfied with the first answer they found on their own. Mm -hmm. uh, and they think that finding something on Google counts as finding it on your own. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I agree that they think they think that way, but I would argue that Thinking you think that way and actually thinking that way, there's there's a gap between them and there's an aspirational gap. Like a lot of things, like we often aspire to be a certain way and don't quite meet up to that. So this is in no way a criticism, but I think it's really important that anyone recognize that what they think they are thinking and think they are doing and think they are believing and and so forth might not quite be what they're actually thinking and doing. And so it's important to be really. Um, to doubt yourself in that sense and like am I being honest here because sometimes we find the answer we're looking for and that's enough so how does a skeptic interact with the gospel then because it sounds at this point I want you to talk more about what you said about the coexistence of doubt and faith okay so this is something I used to think about a lot and then um, um, I haven't in a long time, and part of that is that it's no longer an interesting thing to say, because lots of people say it. Um, it's no longer a clever and daring thing for me to say. Um, doubt has been kind of embraced. Um, I'm not convinced that what you're saying is, I'm not convinced by what you're saying, because I don't hear, I mean, I heard a lot about doubt in, in the Berkeley Ward, right? Yeah. But is it really a church-wide thing? I mean, are people really starting well, to embrace doubt as a philosophy? So, is that a, 
Is that what does that the even Twitter mean? The Twitter stake of Zion yeah. looks a lot more like the Berkeley Ward than the Berkeley Ward looks like the American Church on average, from what people tell me. Mm-hmm. Um, um, this here, feels like a compartmentalization. Yeah. So I just. I did not prepare this, okay. but in answer to your question, I just did a little Googling, and I found a blog post I wrote in 2007 about doubt. Um, I'm assuming this is my thoughts on the subject, um, and this is six years before President Nukdorf, so mm-hmm. I got my hipster cred here. <laughs> um, so I say, there are gobbles to say on the importance of doubt to a religious person. Wait, wait gobbles? Yes. There are gobbles to say? There are gobbles to say. Oh, that, that works. That's English. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so there are gobbles to say on the importance of doubt to a religious person. Tonight, however, just a sampling. I have long believed, and it's certainly a Mormon doctrine. You see how confident I am and cocky. Mm-hmm. That truth is out there. We are intended to look for it, and we can know it when we find it. This is the process of faith. If you'll allow me to define the terms, faith is two things. One, trusting that truth can be found. Two, accepting truth when found. How do you feel so far? I love it. Thanks. This definition presumes something, uh, excuse me, this definition presumes that some things are true and some things are not. Thus, it also presumes that as we have faith that we can find truth, we must also assume that we will find things which are not truth. We call this assumption doubt. And it is important, not just because it is faith's opposite, and I have a link here and I don't know where that goes, it goes to a scripture. <gasps> Do you care? Yeah. I don't know if the link will still work. This link's 13 years old, and they've changed the scripture things a couple times since then. It worked! <laughs> I love it. Ah, so this is, there must needs be opposition in all things in Second Nephi 2. Good. Um, okay, we call this assumption doubt. The assumption that there will be things that aren't true that we find. And it is important. Not just because it's faith's opposite, but because they travel the same road together. They are fellow guides to bring us to the truth. It's a quotation from Khalil Gibran. Doubt is a pain too lonely to know that faith is his twin brother. Of course, what this means is that the truth seeker must be willing to be proved wrong. As time goes on and the fine-tuning of faith occurs, the changes required of one's belief may become smaller, but giving up those small falsities may be all the more difficult. There's another quotation, this one from Paul Tillich. Being religious means asking passionately the questions of the meanings of our existence and being willing to receive answers even if the answers hurt. But that's the way it works. Doubt and faith are complements, not competitors. Here's Paul again. Doubt is not the opposite of faith. It is one element of faith. I don't think that all roads lead to heaven, but I do believe that all earnest seekers find roads that lead to the road that lead to heaven. I do think that the play of faith and doubt runs a different course for every soul. I do believe that we are obliged to support one another and trust one another's faith-slash-doubt processes. I do think in appropriate relationships, we are constrained to share our own discoveries. I do believe that without a godlike omniscience, faith and doubt remain elements of every person's inner life. And I think it's healthy to recognize that a pros... This is a... This is grammatically wrong. I think it's healthy to recognize that a process, recognizing that they work together for our benefit. Maybe that's what I meant. As Hubie Brown was wont to quote, this is Will Durant, Hubie Brown is quoting, no one deserves to believe unless he has served an apprenticeship of doubt. Let us all serve honorably. This is kind of what I'm trying to, to drive at. It's great. Thanks. Um, I really have a foundation of, of, of learning in the church which states that faith and doubt 
can't exist together. Mm -hmm. That one eliminates the other. Okay. Well, and this is also our habit of saying we know things, but but, but vocabulary is doing this. But go ahead, yeah. This idea, it's which it, which states that they are they are opposites and they travel the same path. You know, it's very yin yangy. Yeah, kind it of. is yin yangy. Yeah. Um, I do feel like it's a different way of looking at it. More yin, more yang, more yeah. men. <laughs> um, faith is powerful. Sure. Joseph Smith said that faith was a gift of God. I believe he did say that. Based on obedience. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that it's not stated as an opposition to doubt. The phrase doubt your doubts as interpreted by youth mm -hmm. I believe has had this negative connotation because it sounds like to be blind in your double think in your understanding that is, I think, how they've often interpreted it. The ones who dislike it, I uh -huh. think that's what they've heard. And on the other side of the coin, mm -hmm. not having doubt and rejecting it, I think is also, it's not going to work. The more I think about it, the more I do agree with you that it is possible to do both. <laughs> yeah. I think that's a really important thing to recognize. Um, In Mormon 9.27, we're told to doubt not, but be believing. Oh dear, we were wrong. <laughs> Mormon, you got me again. <laughs> Let's talk about it, all right? In DNC 3.6.36, we're told, doubt not, fear not. Uh-huh. Okay. I just did a search for LDS doubt, and one of the very first or second links is an article by Adam Cotter, right? Um, and it's in 2015 Ensign, When Doubts and Questions Arise. Oh. Right? Sounds relevant. Yeah. And, yeah, these, these two references are worth spending a few, minute on, a few minutes on. Right? The okay. Let me, um, what, what was the one in Mormon? Mormon 927. I'll just read the full verse. Well, I want to, this is in Mormon 9. That, that's helpful. Yeah. I just want to have the context. Go ahead. Oh, that, oh, then despise not, and wonder not, but hearken unto the words of the Lord, and ask the Father in the name of Jesus for what things, what, what, for what things soever ye shall stand in need. Doubt not, but be believing, and begin as in times of old, and come unto the Lord with all your heart, and work out your own salvation with fear and trembling before him. DNC 636, look unto me in every thought, doubt not, fear not. So here are explicit instructions <laughs> not to doubt. <laughs> yeah, she whiz. So what's going on here? And are we about to weasel word away different definitions of the meaning of doubt? It would be an easy thing to do. I'm mm -hmm. actually in a dictionary right now mm -hmm. exploring the word. Um, um, I don't really have a strong opinion. I, th I think we could very easily weasel it away. 
Mm-hmm. Like, I don't think that would be difficult. I don't want to do that. Um, I think it's important to consider the context, though. I mean, this is Mormon, or excuse me, this is Moroni talking. Um, he is a man who is completely alone. Everyone he loves is dead or has become someone who would kill him. Um, he has nothing else to do but to work out his own salvation with fear and trembling. Like, that, that's, that's his full-time job now, right? He, is, he has become a monk. Um, he's moved a step beyond a two-year mission, and he has nothing else to do. Um, this is not me saying that he's wrong or that it doesn't apply to me. But I do think it helps to understand, like, where is he and, and you know, what is he thinking about? He's someone who's seen um, the absolute worst-case scenario of throwing away every good thing. And, yeah, it's understandable. Doubt not, but be believing. How do we apply that teaching at the end of this episode where we've been extolling the virtues of doubt as a way of approaching science, philosophy, and religion? Well, here's, here's what I'm going to do. Here's my weaseling, if mm-hmm. you want to call it that. He's using doubt as a verb. He's, he's making doubt as a verb and believe as a verb as opposites. Where We've been putting doubt as a noun and faith as a noun in balance with each other. And I think there's a significant difference there. Like, doubt as a thing that you hold, just like faith is a thing that you hold, is, is uh, it's a tool. It's something you can use, right? Um, doubt as a verb, just like believe as a verb, are things that you are actively doing. So... Um, you can believe and hold on to both doubt and faith. You can doubt and hold on to both doubt and faith. I, I think the distinction here might be um, in our actions. Like, doubt as a thing is something you can do something with. What are you going to do with it? Doubt as a thing that you are doing it then becomes, like, if our actions define us, then you are now a doubter, as opposed to a person who has doubts. i got a different way to look at it. Okay. Consider this to be a commandment. Okay. In the same way that there is a commandment that states, be therefore perfect. <laughs> okay. I was wondering where, which one you were going to pull out. I didn't see that one coming. Okay. I like it. Okay. I look at a statement like this and I see a goal. Okay. okay that's fair. I see a version of myself that has had so many prayers answered and so many affirmations. Yeah. Right? And has done the research. Yeah. Right? And has has I was put in my time mm-hmm. to the point where there's knowledge. But then why are we being believing if we have knowledge now? I liked where you're going until you drop knowledge into the sentence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but that's where faith is. I mean, the goal is for yeah. faith to evaporate, isn't it? I've heard that, yeah. And for it to become knowledge. I mean, eventually we will be called to stand before the judgment bar of God, right? And there well, will be no. Well, according to Moroni, and apparently he's the expert now. So. <laughs> and there will be no more room for doubt. There will be no room for faith. Yeah. It will just be 
reality. Yeah, that seems fair to me. And it makes sense that Moroni would talk this way. I mean, uh, this is Mormon 9. This is when he first starts writing, as yeah. opposed to Moroni 10 with the Judgment Bar of God stuff, which is where he ends his writing. Um, speaking as an English teacher for a moment, yeah, I love reading Moroni because um, other characters in the Book of Mormon, you see them develop, but it's being told by a narrator. In the case of Nephi... Old Nephi is narrating the story of his growth and development. For most of the Book of Mormon, it's Mormon narrating characters' growth and development. Moroni is the one person in the Book of Mormon for whom this is almost like a journal, right? He writes some stuff at the beginning, and he tries to say all the right things. And then he thinks he's done, and he's not, and he has to do a little more, and he's, like, so insecure, right? And, and then he has, to, he has to do ether? Like, his dad was this awesome literary giant mm -hmm. and now I have to do it to like these other people and I have to like translate it from a crazy language and like and um, but he goes through it and we get to Ether 12 with you know the weaknesses and so forth and by the time we get to Moroni 10 Moroni is a completely different person he's in a completely different kind of writer he's confident he's gone through this experience you're talking about it here in Mormon 9 it's aspirational he's so like doubt not be believing I don't I can't do this this is impossible this why dad did you leave me to this this is, <laughs> makes no sense by the end I mean he is not he doesn't have illusions about who he is he doesn't think that he's you know John Steinbeck or something he <laughs> loved John Steinbeck little known fact about Moroni. Um, but but he's confident. He knows that the Lord has made him strong. Like he's had these visions now, and he's had the experience of translating ether. And he is a new man, right? He is born again. And when he talks about the judgment seat of Christ, he's speaking from a different position than he is here in Mormon Nine, where it's he—it's almost like he's trying to convince himself. Now let's talk about President Ubdorf. Oh, okay. Here's a man in the same position as Moroni. Reasonable thing to say, I think. Who has lived the life, who has put in the time, yeah. right? Has flown the plane to its destination. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> and, and there he says, doubt your doubts. In other words, look, don't, have, don't not have them, <laughs> mm -hmm. but approach them with the same skepticism that you would with anything else in your life. Yeah. They're not special. Your doubts aren't, don't deserve a privileged space. Yeah. I really like this statement here by, um, again, Adam Cotter. One problem with doubt is the intent to obey only after the uncertainty is resolved to the satisfaction of the doubter. That's a good point. Okay. Yes, there are cognitive dissonances in my own brain about the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Mm -hmm. And I don't want them to be there and I'm striving to figure out what really is going on in the history of this church that I love but I'm still going to it <laughs> fake it till you make it is not hypocrisy mm -hmm. it's the only way to make it I you have, have to try to be the person you want to be until you become that person yeah we're a proud member of the dialogue network that's right we sure are <laughs> and um we doubt it not. Yeah. <laughs> Listen to the episodes. Yeah, there. I yeah. Um. <sighs> Crap. Sorry, I had a Shakespeare quotation. I just lost it. Oh, it's uh, Lord Capulet, and it's totally irrelevant. <laughs>